When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I've got three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our dramatic 2-1 victory over Genoa on Sunday, In part 2, I'll review our first Primavera match of the season. And in part 3, I'll review our first Femenile match of the season. So let's start with our match against Genoa on Sunday. We won 2-1 on goals from Fabian Ruiz and Andrea Petania, while Genoa's lone goal was scored by Andrea Cambiasso. This was another stressful match against a team you would have expected to be a fairly easy team to beat. Credit to Genoa though, they played with a lot more purpose in this match than they did in their season opener against Inter. I'm sure playing in front of their home crowd at the Marassi helped with that. I must say though, I was really impressed with the turnout of Napoli fans at the match too. The ultras from the Curva A made the long trip north to Genoa and certainly made their voices heard. It's really great to have fans back in stadiums again, even if it is only at 50% capacity. I got used to the eeriness of playing in empty stadiums. But it is really nice to hear fans cheering and jeering and chanting again. As far as the match goes, I think there were some pretty distinct phases with the momentum shifting from one side to the other. I thought there were a lot of really impressive individual performances. Lorenzo Insigne, Matteo Politano and Stanislav Lobotka were the standout starters for me. Obviously, the substitutes played a key role in the match as well with Andrea Petania scoring the game winner and Adam Unas impressing off the bench. We'll cover all of that in this match review, but first, let's get to the starting lineups. Davide Ballardini made a number of changes to the squad that he fielded against Inter. Salvatore Sirigu started again in goal, and Davide Baraski, Zino Venduzin, and Domenico Criscito played as the back three. In the midfield, Andrea Cambiasso moved over from right wing back to play at left wing back, which freed up the right side for Paolo Guilione. Stefano Sturaro moved into the center of the midfield to play alongside Nicolo Rovella, while Milan Badel played as the attacking midfielder. That's where Hernani played against Inter, but he moved up to play as one of the two strikers alongside Caleb Ekuban, and those two started over Goran Pandev and Yaya Kalon. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti went back to the 4-3-3, but he was forced to make a couple of changes with Piotr Zielinski injured and Victor Osimhen suspended. Alex Meret started again in goal. Kaladu Kulibaly and Kostas Manolas played at centre-back. Mario Rui started at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Stanislav Lobotka played as the regista just behind Fabian Ruiz and Eli Felmas in the midfield. Elmas filled in for Zielinski, which didn't come as a shock. The one question mark heading into this match, at least as far as the squad goes, 
was who would play at striker. I was expecting Chucky Lozano to play at striker and Lorenzo Insigne to play in his usual position on the left wing, but Spalletti went with the opposite, playing Lozano on the wing and Insigne as a false nine. That's where I want to start the review. I was a little skeptical about Insigne playing as a striker heading into this match. My thinking was that you replace pace with pace and put Chucky up top. Instead, Spalletti played Insigne in the middle, but using him as a false nine, pace doesn't really matter. Insigne was near perfect in that role. He did just about everything but score, and he came very close to doing that as well. In the 13th minute, he had a shot deflect off Benthusen and hit the outside of the upright. That was another clear example of Spalletti's vertical approach. With two passes, Manolas to Elmas and then Elmas to Insigne, we went from midfield to a shot at goal. And then, at the half-hour mark, Insigne made a ridiculous touch to split between two Genoa defenders before firing a hard shot on target that was well stopped by Sirigu. So, Insigne had his chances to score like a true 9 would, but as you would expect from a false 9, he also dropped into the number 10 and played as a playmaker. He was roaming, supporting both sides of the pitch, and he played some ridiculous switches from left to right, including on the first goal. I'll talk about Politano in a moment, but one of the criticisms against him is that he's a bit predictable, kind of like Insigne on the left wing, where you know he's going to cut in onto his strong foot and shoot. He didn't do that there. He laid the ball off to Fabian, who dropped his shoulder and fired a perfect shot into the bottom corner, past an outstretched Sirigu. Other than that goal, I don't think Fabian had a particularly strong performance, if I'm being honest. Back to Insigne though, aside from playing that false nine role to a T, I think for the second consecutive match, he showed what a great leader he's become. He was racing back to help defend, he was making sly tackles, and after the match, he led the players to the traveling supporters to greet them. So credit to Spalletti, I think based on this performance, you have to say that he got that decision right. Let's move on to Alex Meret next. I'll start with the negative first and then I'll get to the positive. Of course, the negative was the dropped ball, which led to Goran Pandev scoring against us yet again. Fortunately, VAR reviewed the play and disallowed the goal for obstruction by Alexander Buxa on Meret. My initial reaction was that this was a soft decision and one that we were very fortunate to receive. But the more I watched the replay, the more I felt Marco Di Bello got it right. When I first saw the play, I thought Buxa had a right to go for the ball and perhaps the contact was incidental. And maybe DiBello would have rolled it that way had Buxa not turned his back on the play. But once he's turned and his momentum carries him into Meret, I think that has to be ruled a foul. Meret possibly could have avoided the contact, but a keeper also has a right to go up for the ball. He shouldn't have to adjust to accommodate the opponent. You can see that Meret's knee hits the back of Buxa, his body spins a bit, and presumably that's what causes him to drop the ball. What I will say, and I think most people will agree, is that Meret has to be stronger than that. This may sound a little rough, but as a goalkeeper, you need to plow through the opponent there. You go into the catch with a strong knee out in front of you and dare the opponent to come near you because if they do, they're going to pay. You don't go with this soft knee that causes your body to spin and then you drop the catch. The worst part is that Meret made the exact same mistake less than a minute prior where he dropped the catch without any pressure on him and he was lucky to get away with it. So that's something he will have to work on. However, as a shot stopper, Meret is very, very good. His best save was about midway through the first half. Sturaro flicked the header on just out of the reach of Koulibaly and Mario Rui. Guilione put a hard shot on target, but Meret made a really fine save. Meret foiled Guilione again shortly after the restart. 
we had a bit of a defensive breakdown on that play. Genoa worked the ball around very nicely as well. Badel passed to Pendev. He laid the ball off to Rovella on the line. Meanwhile, Badel continued his run along the wing and Rovella picked him out with a little chip pass over the top. Pandev pulled Manolas with him, which left a ton of space for Badel to make that run. With Manolas out of position, Fabian should have covered, but he was caught watching the play. Then Mario Rui lost Guilione on the cross, or at least gave him too much space, which is why he was able to get the shot off. Now, Rui did block Guilione's second attempt before Rovella fired a third attempt wide of the goal. I mentioned the different phases of the game. The first half of the second half was clearly a phase of the game where Genoa were the better side. Even though they had a goal disallowed, the momentum was on their side, they had the crowd behind them, and they eventually got what I would say was a deserved goal. That's what I want to talk about next. Now, I know everyone jumped on Giovanni Di Lorenzo for this goal. A lot of people rightfully compared it to the goal that Italy conceded against England in the Euros, where Luke Shaw scored on Di Lorenzo's side. Di Lorenzo deserves his share of the blame, but having played as a fullback for a long time, typically what happens in these cases is the fullback doesn't see the run. If you watch both of those goals against Genoa and against England, Di Lorenzo is tracking back and watching the play and doesn't see the run at the back post. He doesn't have eyes on the back of his head. His midfielders need to let him know that there's an open player behind them, whether it's Marco Verratti in the Euros or Fabian Ruiz in this match. Now, there were a few other players who I think were culpable as well. As you know, whenever I break down a goal, I like to rewind the film about 30 to 60 seconds, and when you do that, you can usually find others who were at fault, and this goal was no exception. First, this play started with a Genoa throw-in that was earned because Mario Rui seemed more concerned with flopping around on the ground, which he did twice in succession, than with playing football. Now, I don't want to seem like I'm always bashing Mario Rui because he did make some important plays in this match, which I'll get to in a little bit. When I first saw the replay, I thought perhaps Mario Rui played Guilione onside by following the run of Yaya Cologne when the rest of the line pushed up, but it appears Guilione was onside regardless. Another player that I think was culpable was Matteo Politano. Again, I don't want to be too harsh because he's another player we'll get to that had a really good match, but right before the switch from Rovella, Politano intercepted a pass from Crisito and then was outmuscled off the ball by a 38-year-old Goran Pandev. If he doesn't lose the ball there, then the goal doesn't happen. So yes, Di Lorenzo needs to cover that back post better, but for me, the goal was a culmination of a couple of errors. One thing I have to give Spalletti credit for is how he reacted to the goal. He immediately replaced Lozano with Unas, he then replaced Politano with Andrea Petagna, and to close the match, he brought in Gianluca Gaetano and Juan Jesus, so he's not afraid to use his players. Obviously, the choice to bring in Patania was a wise one. Only two minutes after coming off the bench, he scored the game-winning goal. I mentioned Mario Rui earlier. He won the foul and played the cross on that goal. That's one thing I don't think Mario Rui gets enough credit for, namely that he wins a lot of free kicks on the edge of the area. The problem is we're usually so bad at executing set pieces that those free kicks often go to waste. After the goal, Patania went first to the fans, which was great to see behind the plastic windows at the Marassi. After the fans, he ran towards the bench, and there's a great angle where you can read Spalletti's lips saying, Tu resti qua, you stay here, referring to the rumors that Patania was heavily linked to a move to Sampdoria. You could see how happy his teammates were for him. Everyone ran over to Patania after the goal to celebrate, and I have to say, one of the concerns I had about losing Gattuso was that we'd lose some of the team spirit that he instilled in the club. 
but so far under Spalletti that doesn't seem to have changed. In fact, not only has he maintained the team morale, but we're also getting results that, with all due respect to Gattuso, I don't think we would have gotten last year. We'd be Venezia playing most of the match with 10 men, and then we pulled off a late win after blowing the lead against Genoa. The last thing I want to talk about are some individual performances. The first is Stanislav Lobotka. I thought he was one of the best players on the field for either team, which is quite the turnaround from last season. We pressed high early in the match and Lobotka played a big part of that. He was fighting all match to win the ball back and he was very often successful. You can see why Spalletti prefers the 4-3-3 with Lobotka in the lineup. He really is well suited to that Regista role. He's perhaps not the greatest passer of the ball, though he did play a really nice pass to Politano to set up a chance only a few minutes into the match, but on the ball he's very calm and he rarely makes a poor decision. Another player that worked really hard in this match was Matteo Politano. There was a play in the first half where Mario Rui gave the ball away in a dangerous area and Politano tracked all the way back to clear the ball out. I think with Lozano still needing time to learn Spalletti's system, Politano will continue to get starts and you can't say that he doesn't deserve it. The last player that deserves a shout out is Adam Unas. He came on in the 70th minute and immediately made his presence known. The tired Genoa backline really struggled with his pace off the bench. He's a flexible player who can play in multiple different positions. He's very technical, he can run with the ball at his feet, and we saw that little backheel return pass he made to Politano. And he's an excellent passer as well. Now, as much as I like Unas, I'll maintain that I would have still preferred to sell him if those funds were used to purchase a left back. The reality is we already have three starting quality wingers, but we barely have a starting quality left back. So for that reason, I would have sold him. But if Emerson was the only left back we were interested in purchasing and that fell through, then I'm perfectly happy keeping Unas in the squad. He will get his time either off the bench like he did in this match or to give starters a break, say in the Europa League group stage, or against some of the weaker competition. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll review our first Primavera match of the season. Next, let's review our first Primavera match of the season, which was played against Bologna. This was our first match since returning to the Primavera Uno after spending one season in Primavera Due. The last match Napoli played in Primavera Uno was on March 8, 2020 against Fiorentina. That was before the Federal Council decided to end the Primavera season due to COVID, 
and as a result, Napoli were relegated. Last season, Bologna finished in 14th place in Primavera Uno, which was third from the bottom. That meant that they had to play in a relegation playoff to stay in Primavera Uno. They obviously won that playoff, but just barely. It was a two-legged tie against Lazio. Both matches finished 1-1, so they played extra time where Bologna scored the winner. As you know, we played in a promotion playoff to earn promotion. We were also very fortunate that the Primavera Uno was expanded to 18 clubs, which meant an additional team from the Primavera Due was promoted. Primavera Due has two groups, A and B, so typically the winner of each group is automatically promoted, and then 2nd through 8th place teams in each group play in a promotion playoff to determine who the third promotion club is, but because of COVID, the playoff only included the second and third place teams in each group, and because Primavera Uno was being expanded, the promotion semifinals were treated as finals. We beat Parma and Lecce beat Cremonese, so both semifinalists from Primavera Due B earned promotion to Primavera Uno. So heading into this match, you would expect these two sides to be not too far apart in terms of quality. As I am Naples.it put it, this match was a derby of the benches. Bologna coach Luca Vigiani and Napoli coach Nicolo Frustalupi worked together at Napoli as assistants to Walter Mazzari, and they worked together at Inter and Watford. Frustalupi was missing a couple of players for this match. Antonio Vergara was suspended, while Antonio Trophy continues to recover from COVID. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Bologna lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Nicola Bagnolini in goal. Mattia Montoleze and Omar Caitoli played at centre-back. Ebenezer Anan played at left-back and Alex Arnofoli played at right-back. Kasper Urbanski and Alessandro Pietrelli played in the double pivot. Matias Rocchi started on the left wing, Jacopo Casade started on the right wing, and Mattia Pagliuca started as the trequartista in behind Antonio Raimondo. For Napoli, Frustalupi lined up in a 3-4-2-1 with Huberi Dasiak in goal. Personally, I find it a bit odd that the Primavera would play such a drastically different system than the senior team, but Frustalupi made it clear in his interview with Sport Italia that the three-man backline will be the base of his system. The back three in this match were Davide Costanzo, who wore the captain's armband, Benedetto Barba, and Daniel Hisai, who started over Jonathan Spedalieri. Gennaro Iaccherino and Alessandro Spavone started in the center of the midfield. Davide Acampa and Domenico Di Donna played on the left and right wings, respectively. Pasquale Maranzino and Giuseppe D'Agostino played as the two trequartisti. And finally, Giuseppe Ambrosino started at striker. A number of players made the leap up from the U-17 squad. As far as the starters go, Hisai, Spavone, Didona, and Maranzino were all on the U-17 team last season. All five of our substitutes, Francesco Gioielli, Dylan De Pasquale, Massimo Flora, Antonio Pesce, and Pasquale Pontillo, all played on the U-17 team last season as well, as did Enrico Giannini, who was on the bench. We'll see if all of them stay with the Primavera with some of the players we have coming in and with Vergara and Trophy returning to the squad. Alright, so let's get to the match, which did not start out very well for us. Bologna opened the scoring only 9 minutes into the match. The play started with a Napoli corner kick, which Bologna cleared out and quickly countered. Rocchi made a great run down the right side to about midfield. He was tackled by a camp and it looked like Spavona would recover the loose ball, but he slipped which allowed Rocky to regain possession. Rocky then played a perfect ball over the top to Raimondo. Raimondo got behind our back line and was clear on goal. 
Meanwhile, Idasia came off his line, which was poor judgment on his part. There was no way he would get to that ball before Raimondo did, and as a result, he was stuck in no man's land. Raimondo very calmly took a touch with his chest to get around Idasiak, controlled it, and passed the ball into the empty goal. Serie A commentator and friend of the pod, David Ferrini, pointed out that Raimondo has been called up by Sinisa Mihailovic to Bologna's senior team on occasion, and you could see why. Raimondo was a handful for our backline throughout the match. He nearly set up another goal shortly after the restart. He dribbled past three or four Napoli players to get into the area before cutting the ball back to a wide-open Pietrelli at the top of the box. Fortunately, Pietrelli's shot hit the bar and stayed out. However, as good as Raimondo was for Bologna, I think Ambrosino was even better for Napoli. With Chofi out and Labriola on loan at Taranto, Ambrosino along with Idacia, Costanzo and D'Agostino were our big name players in this match. Ambrosino is a big strong player. We saw that early in the match when he held the ball up against the very physical defending of Bologna centre-back Montoleze. He's an excellent passer as well. In the 34th minute he played a gorgeous through ball to D'Agostino on the right side that nearly led to a goal. D'Agostino beat Bagnolini to the ball but Cailotti cleared the cross out to safety. Only a few minutes later, Ambrosino showed what great feet he has. After Maranzino nutmegged Anan with his pass to Ambrosino, Ambrosino then nutmegged Montoleze to get into the area before Montoleze pulled him down. That resulted in a Napoli penalty kick, which Ambrosino took himself and fired convincingly into the top corner. Anan had a rough half. Just before the break, he was dispossessed by Ambrosino deep in the Bologna half. Personally, I thought that was a foul, but the play was allowed to continue. Ambrosino cut the ball back to Spavone near the penalty spot, and he fired first time into the bottom corner to put Napoli ahead 2-1. Ambrosino was removed in the second half with an injury, but it didn't appear to be too serious. He was able to walk to the bench on his own. Unfortunately, Yaccarino also picked up an injury in this match, and his looked much worse. He fell awkwardly trying to tackle Raimondo, and judging by the treatment he was receiving and the fact that he could barely put any weight on his leg, I fear that he may have injured his knee. All in all, I thought this was a fairly balanced match. I thought we struggled early in the match. Bologna immediately put us on the back foot, and all we could do was play long balls to clear the danger, but we grew into the match well. I mentioned Bologna hitting the crossbar. We hit the upright in the first half on a corner kick to Barba at the near post. Both sides came close to scoring on occasion, and both sides had speculative efforts miss the goal as well. Vijani made two changes to start the second half, which I thought was a pretty aggressive approach, but I guess he saw something he didn't like. Both of the goals Bologna conceded were in the final 10 minutes of the first half, so he definitely wouldn't have liked that. About midway through the half, Frustalupi replaced Bavona with Flora, which was a like-for-like -like replacement, and Maranzino with De Pasquale, which was not. Maranzino was an attacker, while De Pasquale is another central midfielder. That facilitated a shift to a 3-5-2 or a 5-3-2 when defending, which I thought worked quite well. Bologna threw everything they had at it, and they still managed to create a few chances, most notably in the 84th minute. Raimondo headed the ball back to Pietrelli at the top of the box, and he headed to Cavina inside the area. Cavina had the open shot from close range and should have scored, but he blasted it over the bar. That was Bologna's final big chance of the match, which ended 2-1 for Napoli, so this was a great start to the season for the Primavera. That will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review our first Femminile match of the season. Le
final part we'll review our first Feminile match of the season. As I've mentioned previously, we've completely rebuilt our Feminile team with only 4 players remaining in the squad from the team that just barely survived relegation last season. I wouldn't expect to see much change again in the future, especially with the league expected to become a professional league as soon as the 2022-23 campaign. That will have hugely positive consequences for the players and for the league as a whole. Because Serie A Femenila is currently an amateur league, player salaries are capped at 30,000 euros, team salaries are capped at 800,000 euros, and players do not get benefits like pension, maternity leave, and so on. That will all change when the league becomes a professional league, which means Serie A Femenila can attract top talent and therefore become more competitive. Back to last season, Inter finished 8th in the table, which is in the bottom half of the 12-team league. They'll certainly be looking to improve on that this season under new coach and former Italian international Rita Guarino. A club of Inter's pedigree will expect to compete for the Scudetto like all the other big clubs that are affiliated with their men's teams. That includes Juventus who have dominated the league for the four years since they took over Cuneo Calcio Femminile, Milan who took over Brescia Femminile in 2018, and Roma who bought Res Roma in 2018 as well. Of course, Napoli are one of the few remaining teams in the women's top flight that have no affiliation whatsoever with their men's team. There is clearly a correlation between affiliation with the men's team and results, because those teams I mentioned are thriving, while we're struggling to survive and change over our entire squad over one summer. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Inter lined up in a 4-3-3 with Francesca Durante in goal. Lisa Alborghetti and Sanya Sonstevold played at centre-back. Elin Landstrom started at left-back and Beatrice Merlo played at right-back. Flaminia Simonetti started in the centre of the midfield with Gutia Carcuni to her left and Henrietta Cesar on her right. Marta Pandini started on the left wing, Macarena Portales started on the right wing, and Gloria Marinelli played at striker. For Napoli, Alessandro Pistolesi lined up in a 4-3-3, at least on paper, but in practice it looked more like a 4-1-4-1. Yolanda Aguirre started in goal. Emily Garnier and Sedia Bramson started at centre-back. Martina Tognolo started at left-back and Francesca Imprezzabile started at right-back. Sara Gonzalez played as the regista behind Sofia Colombo and Eleonora Goldoni. Ariana Acuti started on the left wing, Kaya Ertzen started on the right wing, and Evi Popedinova started at striker. Alright, so let's get to the match, which was a really difficult one for our women. We were under attack right from the opening whistle and pretty much for the entirety of the 90 minutes. Inter came very close to opening the scoring in the third minute. Carcuni split Ertzen and Imprezzabile on the left wing before playing a perfect cross to Marinelli in the area. She found a bit of space in front of Garnier and Abramson, but her header hit the bar, 
bounced on the goal line and stayed out. Marinelli was causing all sorts of problems for our back line. Only two minutes later, she received Cartuni's pass with her back to the goal, turned around Toniolo and fired a low shot on target, but Aguirre made the save. She had another chance in the 13th minute after a great solo run through the midfield before trying a shot from distance, but that shot finished just wide of the mark. Marinelli was eventually awarded for her efforts in the 41st minute. Portales made a fantastic run on the right wing, dribbling past Toniolo and Acuti with ease before playing a perfect pass across the face of the goal. Marinelli attacked the ball behind our center backs while Imprezzabile appeared to be waiting for it. Marinelli very casually redirected the pass into the bottom corner. That was actually Inter's second goal of the match. The first came only a few minutes before that. That play started with Goldoni trying to be a little bit too cute with a back heel at midfield. It didn't come off and Inter quickly countered. Pandini played a give and go with Portales in the area before Pandini was tackled by Goldoni. Inter were correctly awarded a penalty kick for the foul by Goldoni, who didn't get off to a great start in her first season as captain. Simonetti stepped up to take the penalty and converted it, so Inter went into the break with a two-goal lead. The key difference in the first half was that Inter, for the most part, took their chances, while we did not. We had at least three quality scoring chances that we did not convert. First, Popedinova played Ertzen through on the right side. She crossed the Goldoni in the area. Goldoni did well to wrap her head around the ball but wasn't able to hit the target. Then in the 10th minute, Colombo made a lovely turn at midfield to start the counterattack. Toniolo's cross was headed out by Sonstevold, but the clearance went straight to Goldoni. She hit the ball first time, but again she missed the target. Finally, around the half hour mark, Landstrom misjudged the cross by Akuti, and the ball fell for Ertzin, but she too was unable to keep her shot down. Pistolesi tried to change things up, replacing Colombo with Jimena Blanco at the break, but it didn't work. Inter were just a much better side. Even with a two-goal lead, they continued to dominate the play and created the lion's share of chances. Inter probably should have gotten a second penalty shortly after the restart for a foul by Abramson on Portales in the area, but the match official called the foul the other way. That was after a strange sequence where the official missed three straight fouls, first by Blanco on Portales, then by Cesar on Goldoni, and then finally by Tognolo on Carcuni. Pistolesi wisely removed Toniolo shortly after that because she looked tired and frustrated and was heading towards getting herself sent off. He replaced her with an attacking player in Maddalena Porcarelli, which also made sense since we needed to score. Unfortunately, it was Inter who scored the next goal, which sealed the victory for them. Merlo won the ball from Acuti and played it out wide to veteran substitute Tatiana Bonetti. Her cross was cleared to the top of the box. Once again, the Inter player, Merlo in this case, attacked the ball while the Napoli player, Porcarelli, waited for it. Merlo put a powerful volley on target, which Aguirre did well to stop, but she spilled the rebound and Pandini was waiting there to tap in a much-deserved goal. You could blame Aguirre for the goal, but quite frankly, we did not create enough chances in the match, and when we did, we didn't take them. Aguirre also made two fantastic saves in close succession with about 10 minutes left to play, first on another substitute, Martina Brustia, and then on Marinelli. In the end, it didn't matter though, as this match finished 3-0 for Inter. The pace and skill of Inter's front three were simply too much to handle. On the whole, Inter seemed to be in much better shape than we were as well. You could see tired legs on the field struggling to keep up about midway through the second half. 
Pistolesi acknowledged this after the match. He said, Inter are still ahead of us. I think we had a good first half, but we have to work to improve our condition. We can do better, but we need a different leg that we will find soon because we have worked hard in retreat and are preparing to reap the rewards in the coming weeks. That will do for this match review. I hope you enjoyed it. That will also do for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fortsanopoli Pod. I'll be back soon with more content to keep you occupied during the international break. I'm still planning on releasing my round two review, even though it's a little bit late, and my thoughts on the Mercato, not just for Napoli, but for other clubs in Serie A as well. So stay tuned for that. But until next time, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Network.